right, here we are, Data Protection Breakfast Club, our third episode. <laughs> I'm dressed up. I look like Don John. Dude, you're looking good. Julia said you're looking, looking good. <laughs> our guest today is Julia Schulman, who's the GC and Chief Privacy Officer of a company called Triple Lift in New York City. Pedro and I have known her for many years. We met uh, when she was at AppNexus, which is one of the largest ad tech exits, uh, over a billion dollars to AT&T. Um, Julia was their uh, head of privacy and commercial legal, and she's just really interesting, really thoughtful on these issues and really fun person to talk to. So I'm psyched about she's it. She's fucking awesome. And, and uh, you know, I'll say this, we've known her a long time. I've known her a good while. I've negotiated against her um, uh, yeah. uh, in, in, in prior, both of us were in prior roles. Um, I gotta say, like, she could be and i know i say that a lot of people are smart but she could be the deepest thinker in about privacy and ad tech that i know i mean she knows issues in and out and especially about like the european perspective like even though she's an american and lives in, in the states her is broad but it's deep man she knows a lot she's, like, she's smart two things she did two things to facilitate that one is she actually spent a lot of time in Europe going to Demexco yes. and meeting uh, when they, when ad tech, uh, when app Nexus on the publisher side had really large publisher clients, she would actually go meet with clients and that's uncommon for a lawyer. So she went and totally understood deeply the perspective of the European client. And then the other thing she did, which, which only augments that is how deep she is technically. And I would say she's actually the most technical GC maybe I've ever come across in terms of understanding the technology. Oh, totally agree with her. When she talks and I'm like, are you an engineer? So um, it's, yes. it's a very, very, very um, cutting edge way to practice tech law. Yeah, no, she's, she's sharp, man. And as a GC, like that technical knowledge and I mean, she's just going to rock it, man. I know she's been at her role for, for a little bit now, but she's going to rock it. That company her company's lucky to have her and uh, and I'm super jealous. She's the, she's, she's a boss. She's a boss. I've got a question for you, Andy, before we jump over to her, um, the narco look you got going on. I know we're going <laughs> to, I really like it, man. I, 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 you look like you're like always smiles and you're this jolly guy, but I, I, I'm feeling a little danger, man. This is my new look. <laughs> I think like you should to, rock it. I know you like to call me the Godfather. I, I'm, 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 I'm turning uh, a new leaf here, and this is a Miami Vice, <laughs> Miami Vice style like uh, GC uh, persona that I'm going to take on now. I like it, at Alice too. <laughs> I like it. That's good. The whole company's going to take on this. <laughs> okay, good. Well, you'll all need white Ferraris. This is very important. Okay, like yep. everyone needs white Ferraris, <laughs> and. Uh, Look, man, if you guys get me on the like costume and production bandwagon, all hell is going to break loose back here. So I'm trying to like just hold off as long as I can until I get the itch because things are going to get real interesting if I start putting on clothes. Uh, it's going to get weird. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with Julia and uh, let's get her on here. Yep. Right, let me get the get the recording off. All right, here we are. We're here with Julia Schulman, the GC of Triple Lift and Chief Privacy Officer. AKA, AKA Privacy Lisa Turtle. It's looking good. Looking good. <laughs> exactly what I'm going for. 
<laughs> we have a lot to talk like about like with Julia. Julia is one of our really good friends. And so uh, let's start with, I, I called this episode Summer Rental. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it just, it got me in the mood because of all the photos of Julia posts of <laughs> herself with her toes in the sand working, which I'm always so jealous of. So my first question oh, is, yes. are you a member of Bravo's Summer House cast in the Hamptons? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was my idea, but I decided to turn it over to someone else because I, I just really prefer to work in AdTech instead. Yeah. Understood. Yeah, you get you gave up that lifestyle for some ad tech, okay? Yeah, yeah. Let's start with how we met. Let's start with how we met. So I'll I'll say how Julia and I met, and then you guys can. I Julia came up to me and introduced herself after a panel in D.C. You know, because she was working with AppNexus and I was working with DataZoo, and I, I just right away was like, "So are you going public?" <laughs> was, I'm sure you were horrified. You were like, I, "I'm we're pretty busy." <laughs> but, I'm trying yeah I can't even remember was it a no slides panel or I can't <laughs> might have been early for that I don't know I don't I don't remember but you know luckily you forgave me for that that blunt instrument of, a, of an introduction and we we got to be friends what about how did you yeah and, and nothing's ever changed like I regularly get prying text from Andy <laughs> same what about you Julia I don't remember I don't remember how we met. I don't, I don't know. either. I'm it's sure like, it was like the streets. It was, I I, it was, it was streets. either. Yeah, it was like it was. We were like wandering around, and I saw him, and I was like, "God, he looks like he works in ad tech." Like I see, I see that burning <laughs> light right, in right. his eyes. That's right. It might have been. Right. It was yeah, either I, at a conference or it was actually like potentially in a negotiation. Like we, you, Oracle yeah. might have been being annoying to deal with. Shocker. And someone might have yeah, said, oh, I, you should reach out to Pedro to discuss. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that might have been it. Um, it was either that or on some crime spree that you were on that I was trying to stop. But um, yeah, I don't remember how we met exactly. I do remember those negotiations, though, and they carried on for a long time. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like that was like seven or eight years ago. I feel like we've known each other a long time. That 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 is definitely the truth. I didn't know you had this like alter ego of Lisa Turtle, but it, it's pretty cool. And um, I've got quite, <laughs> I've got two questions for both of you because you're both wearing jackets, right? Like, Andy, where the hell did you get this jacket? And then, <laughs> how many jackets and shirts are you wearing? Like, that's an important question. I'll let you guess. Please let's proceed. Guess. Uh, I mean, Julie, how many I fucking mean, jackets are you wearing? Like, what's going on? I when you wear a pop collar, you have to wear at least three, right? Like it's just yeah, there's just there's just a couple down there. I you know going okay. for a medley. Looking good. I expect yeah. it to be Looking very good. warm by the end of this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's gonna be sweating, and then Andy, I can see the shoulder pads in those things, man. Just yep. putting that out there. So got mine. In my face. <laughs> Marshall. No. Yeah, but that's your that's your negotiation jacket, right? Like when you were an associate, that was definitely what you wore. This is uh, so I worked for uh, a law firm, and I worked for a partner that taught me everything that I didn't want to be in, in, in an attorney. So it was a really valuable experience, and he made made it clear that I needed to wear a suit every day. And he did not wear a suit. He did not wear a suit every day. He, 
he, uh, helpful thank wanted, you wanted me to be wearing a suit every day so i have a fantastic collection of suits and ties that i never wear <laughs> i got them i got ties for every holiday i have an amazing closet i'm looking at it full of uh stuff that i rarely get to break out and this is one sadly it's a seersucker jacket that i really do like but i, I never wear it <laughs> now I just, you should just start I just, wearing I, I a feel, jacket and tie every day just exactly I think I'd fit in. And I feel like you should be smoking. I feel like <laughs> this isn't right without you smoking right now. <laughs> Just a big cigar. <laughs> well, on that note, on that note, let's talk to Julia. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go back. We go back a little bit. Go back to law school, and we could go back before that. But but go back to law school. And I guess my question is, did you have any sense that you? How would you feel about ad tech when you were a baby? No, we're gonna start with you as a baby. I just want to know if you, uh, like, if you thought like, about. Uh, going going in-house as a GC back then? Did you think about it? Did you, were you aware of it? So believe it or not, I thought I wanted to be a tax attorney in okay. school. I know, I mean, wow. let's, yeah, like little, little do you know how much of a nerd I actually am. Um, so I took like all the tax classes. It was like me and some accounting guy who came in and, and taught like four of us all the nuances of the tax code and i thought i was going to do that at the law firm and like do all this cool deal structuring behind the scenes mm. god she got smart <laughs> yes yeah but that that was definitely now is my reaction and within three months of starting at a law firm and doing it i was like absolutely not oh, so you so you went to latham and watkins large global law firm and you started doing that and it only took how many three months for you to change? Oh, definitely. I mean, because you, you know, it's someone between the finance team and the corporate team, they would send me the same document over and over and ask me to mark up the four reps and warranties and covenants associated with, with tax. And that was it. And I was like, what? Like, did I not take this job to help companies like, and understand what they're trying to do and achieve? Like, this is just marking up the same provision over and over and over. But how were you able to make the transition to like, mergers and acquisitions in the full deal yeah we were i'm really fortunate at latham we were unassigned and so i was able to just wander around and introduce myself to various partners and associates that were working on deals and jumped in and, and actually got to work on a lot of cool stuff was there a lot of pressure there <laughs> there was yeah i mean uh, you know we all i think we all started our careers sort of around the same time um, and so there was already a lot of pressure when I was first starting out working on these deals and then the you know, financial crisis hit in 07. And so Latham actually laid off a lot of associates and on many deals I was working on, the mid to senior level associate was gone. And all of a sudden it was me, a second year associate, literally running deals with senior partners who would send me to negotiations by myself and tell me to handle Cheap. marking up like documents. Did you, did Cheap you labor, man. Do you look back on that as formative or like, was it good or, or was it just insane? It was, it was, I mean, it was insane at the time, right? But it was my initial like throw, throw you in the defense, learn how to like fake it till you make it, figure out how to run around and find the right people to help you understand and get answers on things. And that was just on the work side. I think on the client management side, 
I, I had to be the one to go into negotiations and like keep, keep the room in order and have conversations and chit chat with clients, take them to dinner, figure out how to keep, you know, random guys from the Midwest, Texas, London, New York City, New Jersey happy uh, and wanting to use us, which was just insane at the time. What it, it's funny you said fake it till you make it. Like, I feel like that's the law firm model even now. Like, you know, we spend, I'm sure all of us have outside counsel budgets that we are careful about how we spend, but half the time I feel like the firms are learning as they go along. Um, do you guys get that? Do you get that sense, Julia, like in your work now as a GC? And Andy, I'm interested to hear what you think about the same thing. Yeah. So my philosophy is I'm actually happy to have associates working on deals who are learning, but I'm not happy to pay for them. So I've had a couple of things going on, you know, whether it's corporate litigation, you name it, where there's some great smart associates and I bring them along and I'm happy to have them working on stuff, but I'm not going to pay full price for them. My take on this is that uh, there, if the firm that I'm working with is open with me and they say, look, this is an issue. We're not, it's new. We're not really familiar with it. We're going to dig in on it and we'll, we'll get back to you. I've seen that be most successful. Right. And they tell me mm, we've had to tap some outside resources ourselves and get smart on it. The question is once they get smart on it, how are they? And from what I've seen, you know, the firms that I I've worked with, um, the ones that dig in, figure it out quickly, understand and drive right to the point, are the ones that you know you keep working with, and so um, I have no problem with them digging in and learning stuff, especially if they're open about it. It's it's when they're not that makes it very difficult. Like, oh, we got this, and then they come back later, you know, some issue in another country or something where they're like, we've got some. If you don't have the answer, just tell me because I can I can easily find the answer somewhere else. I don't want to spin wheels. None of us on this call have time to waste. That that's the the biggest thing. The money is is one one piece of the puzzle time is the biggest i mean we're all even in you know startup land or, or or bigger companies that i've been with everyone is still moving quickly and you need to move um, at a reasonable reasonably fast pace that's such a good that's point interesting. The, yeah no go ahead pedro uh, no you go ahead you go ahead <laughs> i was just gonna say i think in our in all of our spaces too firms are just seeing the value of spinning up practices that focus on technology in the first place and then also can help on like day-to-day -day commercial and privacy matters versus like big big corporate deals or diligence and I find you know they're actually really leaning on us to help them learn like about our technology and learn about how the industry applies the law and various self-regulatory codes, you name it, to our practices. And so we're actually valuable resources for them. And I'm okay with that sometimes when we need external resourcing and extra bandwidth, but I'm not cool with it when, you know, they, to your point, Andy, pretend they're experts, and then you end up on the other side of them on a deal or, you know, working on a matter, and they're trying to pretend like they know it as well as you do. What about you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not, I'm not interested in paying anybody for anybody to learn anything. Like that's just not, I know that that disrupts the law firm model, right? A little bit. Um, but I've got to decide what to spend my outside counsel budget on. 
teaching associates is not part of it. And so that's a problem with the law firm model, not with my budget. You get what I mean? Like they've worked in this learning time and expect clients to pay. I just can't afford it. I don't want to pay. Um, And so there are some very... I don't think all of them expect to pay. I mean, I think so... So the, the, as I was sort of saying a little bit before, like the money to me is, a, is another, like that's almost a separate bucket, the payment, because um, the, the, good, the good relationships I have are the ones where the bills come through and there's a lot that I'm not seeing already because they already know yeah. I'm not going to send a bill that's ludicrous, right? And, and it doesn't work for them either. They're not going to send, it doesn't, it's not helpful for them to send a, a crazy bill. And in those situations when that has happened, I do have to go back and say, this bill is crazy. And then, and then luckily, luckily we're in a position where they want to make it work and they will say, okay, well, let's figure out what the bill should be. And so rarely has it been a situation where they stick hard on what the bill, what, what a crazy bill is. And so I think, you know, luckily part of the puzzle is just finding um, the, the people that will understand that what you're comfortable with. And ultimately it's the, the total bill at the end of the day. It's not what's, we don't, I don't spend my time looking through every single billable moment in the bill. Yeah. And it's, it's also just about the relationship and trust. Exactly. Exactly. Like I I totally agree with you. Like the firms I work with understand where I'm coming from now, right? After years and years of working together with me, I'm not going to get some funny bill for some associate, you know, 15 hours researching, you know, CPRA, right? Like that's not gonna, that's not gonna work for me, but they know that already. But when you work with newer firms or you work on issues that maybe you don't have the depth on, I think you do have to kind of look at those bills at first and make sure that like where you have an understanding of what, at what value I'm willing to pay for and, you know, training time, I'm just not willing to do it. And to your point about time, Andy, I think it's a good one. Like, God, nothing is better than when you trust your outside counsel. Like I have two really go-to firms that I work with on most of my stuff and I've been working with them a long time and I rarely go and like parse out bills because I know that they're not going to do you know these like not that anybody's trying to deceive or mislead but there's not going to be any stacked bills in there because you know we've got 10 years now of working together and I understand how that works but super interesting stuff I you guys are big hotshot GCs I'm just a guy down here in the trenches but um in one of the biggest, I like to hear your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, I'm probably one of one of the biggest uh, users of <laughs> legal resources. So we lean on you guys uh, to do a lot of the training of these law firms, so that we get good services out of them. Well, so Julia, how yeah, was AppNexus when you joined? So AppNexus was goodness. It was six hundred. And it, and it went up to about 1200 at one point when I was there. So it grew about 50%. What was the difference culturally from the beginning to the end? I came in, uh, you know, many, many of the old schoolers, I think we all reference probably three to four different periods at the company. And I came in right at the outset of the third, like the third inning of the company. And so I, I do think I missed out on the first two very initial growth phases and changes of the guard, but the, the third inning and the fourth inning, I would say the third inning, we were really maturing, um, really maturing processes, um, and then also maturing as a company with a mission and a company with 
not only a corporate mission, but also a, um, a cultural and a, you know, philosophy just on the world and wanting to kind of use the platform of the company for good, which made a huge impression on me coming from, you know, law firm culture and then, you know, stop over at a British public company where there was just absolutely no concept. Was that, that. was that top down from the CEO? It was, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think it was, it was certainly Brian. It was also his executive team though. Um, so my boss, Nithya Doss, influenced a lot in the thinking at the company around um, corporate mission and giving back to the community. And uh, it was just really, really powerful to see us use that platform. And of course, we're not, you know, the size of the Salesforces and Oracles of the world, but even just, you know, a, a well-known startup in New York City taking a stance on something like that was a huge thing. Pedro Salesforce is doing a lot of standing up right now, which is good. There's a little bit of that going on. Um, you know, it's an, you know, it's interesting to me and I know we're all like ad tech, like burnout veterans and stuff, but like watching ad tech, it's like we always say like, and you talked about this, Julia, but like in general, is ad tech as an industry maturing? <laughs> like is the, is maturing the right word? Like what is happening in ad tech? I don't know that it's growth in the sense of like internal sophistication growth. I think it's just being forced to change, but is it really maturing? Is it really recognizing its role and responsibility in society impacts people, Julia? Interested to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> um, great question. Uh, you know, I think it depends on the company and on the culture. And, and what I mean by that is I think it depends on certainly just the executive team and their philosophy on, you know, their, their mission as a company. But I think it also depends on honestly, like where they are from a financing perspective and whether they're really looking short term or whether they've got runway to look bigger picture because we can all pat big companies on the back and say, you know, they're, they're trying to really change things and they're looking out into the future. But most of the time they have the, the financial runway and the resourcing to do that versus there's other companies that they're not sure they're going to be able to make payroll week over week. And so they just, they can't take those long-term positions. And if you extrapolate that high level thinking into our world of privacy and legal, you know, if you need to kind of make payroll the next week, you are certainly not going to be investing in a complete reset of your data pipeline or, you know, bringing in a powerhouse lawyer or privacy expert to kind of reset your internal culture and how you use data. And I'm, and I'm not saying that because I always agree with that, but I think that's what we're up against in our industry. And until the bigger companies kind of force change, regulators force change, and society as a whole truly demands it, I don't think we're going to see the change we want to see. You know what? I, I, I understand that, and I, and I agree with you in your sentiment. But what's interesting to me is the companies that have gotten big have been the ones that have taken the biggest risks, right? Like, I mean, in some regard, like, you know, Google didn't become this behemoth in digital advertising by, you know, conservatively climbing its way up to the top, and neither did Facebook. I'm not picking on those guys. I'm just, they're just the biggest ones. Um, and so like you get rewarded 
for being cavalier. And then once you're big enough, you can't be cavalier anymore because the scrutiny is too high, right? So it's just like, to me, it's like an interesting, it's not unique to ad tech, but it's kind of amplified in ad tech, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, you, the more you're willing, you're, you're, the higher risk tolerance, particularly of data, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't want to say the more likely you are to unicorn out, but it, I think it definitely increases your chances depending on what your business model is to, to, to scale quickly because you kind of sidestep some of these very kind of slow, methodical, like privacy by design or whatever uh, data governance uh, matters that uh, data governance issues that don't tend to matter to little companies, but then really matter to big companies. So it's like you get rewarded for being risky early and then you have to change. And to your point, lots of companies don't even make it to that point. But in the meantime, consumers are the ones whose data is getting used to build all of these companies. Um, it just doesn't strike me as fundamentally healthy. But I think you have to have careers. You have to have investors. You have to have investors that have a long view and, and understand data. Um, and are willing to have the data conversation. And I actually think that is the case much more now than it was five years ago. Um, the, the board level conversations, the investor level conversations about data are happening. And they, I don't think five years ago they were happening nearly as much. It was much like you described, build scale really quickly, um, build a product, um, don't, don't spend a whole lot of time on, um, on architecture or, you know, cause, cause we all know this from hard experience of, of 2018 going into looking at systems that were built prior to that, not built for any sort of deletion or data access. Right. So it's, it's you, you that, the, the impact of that is being felt now and, and you do have to have investors that will grow with you and understand that exactly what you just said, like the, the company is going to be focused in one area, less focused in others at certain stages of their life. And when, when uh, you invest in the business, you have to trust um, this hasn't changed, but they have to trust the management team. The management team is going to take it to the next level and do all the things that need to be done, dot the I's, cross the T's and, and move things into maturity, which, you know, is, is not an easy decision for them to make. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it, to your point, Pedro, also like Google and Facebook just grew up in, in my opinion, in a time when companies just weren't thinking about these issues, but they got big enough, like they were able to scale without building in the backend access controlling and, you know, more sophisticated data infrastructure. And now they're paying for it sort of, but they're so big that I think, you know, they kind of take those hits and then they've got big teams now running around slowly re-architecting their system, slowly re-architecting their products. And then we can talk about the elephant in the room, but the, the, the real elephant in the room is they can afford those teams, they can re-architect their systems and all of these regulations out there actually totally benefit them because they, they don't have to share out that data They've got armies of teams that have been doing R&D for years on you know, de-identified and anonymized data and they control access to users and devices. They so, were doing that research for fun before. Yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> for fun. And now they're like, oh, look, looky here, like differential privacy and you know, yeah. um, 
everything you know we all salivate over as privacy you know experts and then it just benefits their products and services do we exonerate and I'm, again i'm not it's not just google and facebook it's a lot of companies but it, and, and i've worked for some of these i don't currently but i but i have um do we exonerate companies by saying, you know, they weren't just, these issues weren't in play when people, I don't know if it was Eric Schmidt or Larry Page or one of these guys, but like say things like privacy is dead, you know? And so they're clearly thinking about it, uh, you know, and some of the comments made at high levels at other companies, they've clearly thought about the privacy implications of their product and said, you know, screw it, we don't care. Like, it, you know, it's not real. Like people's expectations need to change. And clearly they have not changed because just two years ago we had GDPR. Now we've got CCPA, we've got LGPD, we've got CPRA. We've got all of this talk in Washington about a national privacy law. So people's expectations, in my opinion, are actually getting, uh, uh, are increasing as far as the, their privacy protections. You look at the next generations behind us, the Zers and these kids, like, you know, they're about ephemeral technology. They use Snapchat, you know, they're on TikTok. You can get things and get rid of them. And, and they might not understand the back end of what's happening with their data, but on the front end, they're very much into, I don't want my stuff posted here forever. Uh, and, and, and especially not, you know, because I, I think they understand things don't always age well. Question is, do we exonerate these companies by saying, well, they weren't considering these issues when we sort of know they were because there's mm. enough public statements out there that they just said, yeah, we know, but we don't care. I mean, I would say we certainly do not exonerate them. And I, I, I always stand on my high horse of where I come from on this is I think technology policy um, and strategy were divorced and run in silos for too long at many of the big tech companies and certainly still at a lot of the smaller companies. And you end up with all of these awful designs and the challenges that we are all now tasked with trying to solve because people weren't necessarily all sitting at a table thinking about what the best way was to build a product or bring it to market. Andy smiling. I don't I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think um having been inside really large companies it's been a while but i i have um it's challenging because the pace is so different um and the and and when something comes down as an edict in some way it just takes a long time for a sea change to happen in a really large company and and even a tech company like the ones we're talking about um, it, you're talking about cultural change. And so that's, that's actually way more difficult than product. Um, someone, so maybe they can deploy someone to build products and do stuff, but the size, scope, and scale of those organizations, all of the different data points, all the different places those things are and live. I mean, I don't know that we exonerate them or that, or that this is meant to give them a pass or anything like that, but it's just difficult because they are what they are and we do, they're monolithic, but we need to, we do need them to act and behave in certain ways. And, and so my gut vibe is that they're, they're coming around towards uh, being more privacy focused and more privacy friendly. And certainly Google is. And 
um, whether whether Facebook will, I'm not sure. We could talk about other, there's other companies in the mix here too, but um, you know, I think, I think unfortunately <laughs> they're so big and so, and so um, that they, that they can wait, they can wait for regulatory things to play out. And, and sometimes that's what happens. And they can fight regulatory fights, right? Like they've got the resources to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're watching it play out with CPRA in California and the big players kind of chiming in um, in ways that small companies really can't, right? And so, for example, if something's in Google's interest, even if it's not in the interest of the rest of the industry, Google speaking on it can sway the way decision made about a law, a regulation, uh, an enforcement action. Um, and, you know, that's incredible power. Uh, I'm not, you know, you said something important, which, which I think is like, you know, your gut tells you that there's a new renewed focus on privacy. You know, like the ethical ethicist in me is like, okay, well, why is it happening? Or the philosopher in me, I'd say, like, why is it happening? Um, and I don't, I definitely don't think it's altruism or some, you know, new egalitarianism by big tech companies. I just think they realize we're going to lose money. And so we got to do this thing. What, what do you think about that? I'll let Julie have the last word because we got to wrap some Um Yeah, look, I think there's probably some believers um, at the company who altruistically or from an ethical perspective or fundamental rights perspective believe um, that privacy matters and that users actually have these rights. And then to your point, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are just saying, we're getting hammered, we're gonna lose money. And also, by the way, we strategically benefit from investing in these things and making sure these regulations are drafted in the way that helps us. So win-win, like let's get the best and the brightest at the table and make this work. That's it. I've got, I've got one more question and I know we're long, but I don't care. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Um, if you could, Julia, this is obviously for you. If, if you could have magically created a, the internet and a social media platform in the 1980s, which one would you want to exist and why? This is a hard question. This is a very hard question. Um, <laughs> this is a hard question. Social media platform. You know what? I, when I was doing my hair, um, so, so lovely <laughs> and beautiful, I actually went to the hairdresser for this. Uh, we were discussing, you know, role models of the 80s. And many of them were really good dancers, like Paula Abdul and Madonna and whatnot. So putting all privacy concerns aside and all geopolitical fighting aside, I think I'd go with TikTok. Because oh, I mean, who doesn't want to do? <laughs> I think that's a good call. I mean, Instagram, Instagram. That's a good choice. Yeah, but yeah, but TikTok's the right choice. Wow, that, that's really good. Yeah, I can you imagine like Madonna in like 87, 88, or, 80, or even earlier with like a TikTok account? Oh my God. Yep. Like all that stuff that was banned on TV, you know, like, right. you know, and it, it probably would have destroyed like the emergence of MTV. Like, I don't think MTV happened if we have TikTok in the 80s, the way it did, right? Like how important MTV became, like, no way. Artists would just have a different platform. Yeah, we TikTok's a good choice. Another, I really like that. Another hour on this. <laughs> yeah, I really like that choice.
I'm thinking Millie Vanilli, but yes, we could spend an hour talking yeah. about the Running Man and yeah, all the good bits. Julia, we, we will let you return to your real job. Uh, but, yeah. but this please, was so fun. Please, I would just hang out with you guys for hours and hours. Background for your other Zoom calls today. Uh, all day, every day. <laughs> you need to keep all this right. clothes on for the rest of the day. Make sure you. I totally. I told Andy I've got a legal one-on-one trading and. This is this is it. Okay, this is what they're getting. Background. Good. Good. All right, guys. Good. I'm so psyched for your show. Yeah, Thanks for good. having me. Thanks. Bye. Bye.